morning. Our passage today is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 2. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles in front of you, you will find the passage beginning on page 686. That's Nehemiah, chapter 6, is where we're starting today. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. <clears throat> Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying out a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking, their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemamiah, the son of Delilah, the son of Metubalah, who was shut in the home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because of Tobiah and Sambalad had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I should commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember, Tobiah and Sambalad my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in the 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under an oath to him, since he was the son-of-law of Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son, Jehoahanan, had married the daughter, Meshulam's son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I had said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been built and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Thanks, Helen. Morning, everyone. You are the ones unintimidated by snow. I always think it's funny because I'm from New York, the snow belt of New York, and the idea that snow could stop you from going someplace just doesn't compute with me. And so I always think it's kind of funny, even like in Wisconsin, I'm like, it's not Atlanta, guys. You can drive in the snow. All right. Um, so. Somebody told me a few weeks ago that when I introduced Nehemiah, I was like, the fun thing about doing Nehemiah is that we're not doing a building campaign, and um, so we can really like, just talk about what's here, not worry about trying to raise money. And then a few couple people said, you know what people heard is that you're never going to do a building campaign. And I, I just want you to know, 
I would never deprive you of the opportunity to do something great in your generation. So don't, I'm going to do whatever I think God wants us to do. And if it includes a building campaign, God rest my soul, then it'll be really, I'm just, we're not doing it now. We're just listening to what Nehemiah has to tell us, okay? Um, and what the Lord has to tell us today. So don't. All right. Um, you know, a lot of people think that if, like Nehemiah, we um, try to live a life of really deep integrity, that people are going to love us. We've seen people who've lived with integrity and people really—lots of people clearly respected them. And we're like, man, if we try to follow Jesus and all of his integrity, and we are like Nehemiah and live a life of honesty and integrity, people are going to love us. And I just want you to know that that is not true. It's not true. All the people who will come to your funeral will love you. That's not all the people you're going to interact with in your life. It's kind of two-thirds true in the sense that— Some people will really love you for it because they love integrity and they love people of integrity. Some people are comforted by it. Like if you knew that the police in your neighborhood had general integrity, that would comfort you. You don't really want to interact with them, but it's a comforting idea, right? Some people are just going to hate you for it, right? And there's at least—there's a bunch of reasons why people maybe don't—aren't that impressed with you trying to live with integrity. One is is that our integrity is never as integral as we think it is. (laughs) We think we have really great integrity, but integrity in human beings always have holes And those holes are really obvious to the people that we have conflict with. And so our integrity in their eyes is always less impressive than it is in our eyes, right? The the second reason is that most people respect integrity as long as the person acting with integrity doesn't do something that feels threatening to them. Because if you do something that feels threatening to them and they know you have integrity, they know you're going to follow through. They know people might follow you. They know you're not going to, like, quit and do something else the next day. So, so they, they're all the more threatened by you if they believe you have integrity, and that really bothers them. And then another is, you may just symbolize what they hate. It may be your gender or your race or something like that, but it could just be, like, you, your mannerisms are like their dad, and they hate their dad. Or it could be that your temperament is kind of the opposite of theirs. And so they really—they they associate you with bad people because you're different in those temperamental ways. Does that make sense? And, and you just like—or they might just—they might know you vote for people other than they vote for. Or they, there's lots of reasons. You don't shop at Whole Foods properly. Or, I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons why people can see you as symbolizing something they think is wrong with the world. And the more integrity you have in it, the more they'll dislike you. Right? Because they see that integrity as itself a threat. So you—one of the things we have to do—there's there's three things. This is—this should be the only alliteration in the sermon, okay? I'm going to get to it in a second. Sorry. I'm a little ahead of myself. So Jesus said to us that integrity has to have the, a divine con, um, confluence of two very important things, shrewdness and innocence. He said, listen, you guys, we're going to have to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. You're saying, listen, of all the living creatures on planet Earth— Aside from mosquitoes. What do you think is the creature on planet Earth that people want to kill the most? Right, like it's based, humans have a long and diverse history of hating snakes. One of the things that almost all cultures and races and genders can agree upon is that most snakes should be killed. Like, everybody, like, if you have a pet snake, you're probably not going to have a lot of friends. Like, people are going to be like, there's something wrong with that guy. Right? I'm just kidding. That's not really true. But I will—listen— I'll just tell you, listen, if you don't know this, if you have a pet—well, if you probably have a pet reptile, but let's just focus on snakes for right now. If you have a pet snake, a lot of people who know you have a pet snake think there's something a little wrong with you. (laughs) They do. It's just true. That doesn't mean there is something wrong with you. It just means people don't like snakes. And if you have a pet one, people are like, there's probably something wrong with that guy. You know what I mean? It's fine to have a pet. You are free in Christ to have a pet snake. But you should just know the social implications. Okay, moving on. You see, what, the pro- part of the issue is the word innocence means at least two things in all languages, right? It can mean not guilty, and it can mean naive, right? And you see, if, if you are innocent in the naive sense, right, but you're pure in the moral sense, that is the profile of the deceived, the person who's easy to manipulate and then break. But if you're shrewd, but not pure, well, that's the profile of the deceiver. Neither one is a good profile, 
right? There's a divine combination in Jesus and that he develops in his people where they're simultaneously innocent in the purity sense, but not naive because they've grown in wisdom in the shrewdness sense. Almost like a seed, because most people think, well, snake, that must be referring to the garden. We should be shrewd like Satan. That's not really the point, right? The reason why the snake in the garden is shrewd and the reason why snake is used here is probably because everybody's trying to kill snakes, so they're shrewd. So, it, so the animal that most easily represents Satan can be used in the first story in Genesis is a snake, because that makes sense. He's the shrewdest because everybody tries to kill snakes, right? And here, you need to realize that integrity actually puts a mark on you. It doesn't just raise you in people's esteem. It also puts a mark on your back. Just like everybody wants to kill a snake, they're like, the snake's just slithering there. And he's like, oh my gosh, they're gonna try to kill me. I didn't do a thing, right? That's how you're gonna feel if you try to live in loving integrity and honesty in the world. It puts a mark on your back. You're like a snake. Everybody wants to just cut your head off because they think you're poisonous, even if you're not. And you're eating mice and rodents and making their life better. They don't care, right? Snakes are so misunderstood. Okay. Once you recognize that trying to pursue a life of integrity that tries to build, that it's going to face numerous slanders and intrigues, which is what chapter 6 in Nehemiah is all about, right? What you got to realize it's like, we, you've got to be shrewd. And the negative of that, of course, is don't be naive, right? And that that statement is not just a little statement that shows up in Matthew 10 that Jesus says, like, Jesus has a lot of helpful statements. That's just one of his very helpful statements. No, that is a very important central teaching about godliness. That godliness has to be demonstrated and lived out in the divine combination of a profound wisdom about how the world is and how to live in it, and a full purity in innocence and purity of heart to please God combined in one character. And just because that verse shows up once— doesn't mean that it's not a major teaching of Jesus, right? I'm going to keep going here. So, for example, there are a lot of people who think that Jesus is like, I mean, he's just kind of like a positivity hippie. You know what I mean? Like he's, he, he, like he doesn't kill anyone, right? And like he's always healing people and being nice to women and stuff who he doesn't take on dates afterwards. And like he, he like, he says these things that seem like they're profoundly naive. Like, for example, he says, love your enemy and do good to them. Right? Like, think about this. How, I mean, if you're a, sophisticated, you're a sophisticated person, right? What happens if you're nice to your enemies? What happens to you? They destroy you. I, do you not know this? Okay. okay. Also, there's another place where he says, uh, if somebody asks for your coat, give them your jacket also. Right? Now, you're sophisticated enough to know where that's going to go. What happens if when people ask you for stuff, you always give it to them, you give them even more than what they ask for? What happens? They keep asking for stuff, and they take advantage of you, right? So like, Jesus has these profoundly naive statements. Where does he get off saying to people, you need to be super shrewd, right? Why am I saying this? Why am I arguing against Jesus, right? The, the, the reason is, is that you and I think that we're very sophisticated. We think we're sophisticated, and we're actually sophisticatedly naive. We're incredibly naive about the way the world really is, but in a pretty sophisticated way, right? It's kind of like talking to a, a master's student or a PhD student or like a sophomore undergrad where they didn't know anything about a field, and then they start studying a field, and now they've complexified the field. They know a lot of the problems with things, and they have all this knowledge, and they're like, they're like, well, there's the this and the that, and they start saying words you've never heard of, and they, they've learned the vocabulary, right? And you're like, okay, awesome. How do I solve this problem? And they're like, well, there's lots of ways to think about that. And they, you're like, right? I was listening to uh, an interview with a guy, named, uh, a, a guy named George Will, who has been writing in Washington. He has a PhD in political philosophy, and um, he's been doing that for 50 years, right? And it's hilarious because you ask him a question, and he gives you like a straight answer. It's amazing, right? Like somebody asked him, like, why do you think— the governmental budget should go down. He's like, well, it's simple. We have the largest generation in history. We've tied the largest generation in history to the most expensive thing we do, healthcare. So our budget is going to expand out of control. So we have to decrease everything else or raise a lot of revenue. So the economy has to grow over 3%. Simple. And it is that simple. 
But most people don't, can't get to that point of simplicity. People who really, 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 really know something have gone from simplicity, which is simplistic. It's not the right answer. That's most of us. And then in our field, we've gotten to the point of complexity. But then there's a simplicity on the other side of it that sounds like foolishness to both of these people. Does that make sense? And you see, Jesus has a lot of really simple sayings that sound like they're over here on this side of naivety, or they're out here in Hippieville of somebody who's just like, it's all like free bananas and ponies, you know what I mean? And not connected to the real world. And the problem is, is that he's so far ahead of us in terms of what really produces what, and what really leads to what, and what will really make what in us, that we, because we're sophisticatedly naive, we listen to true wisdom and we think it's silly. But what you need to understand is Jesus was not just the purest man who ever lived, morally speaking. He is the shrewdest being that has ever walked the face of the earth. He's a hundred thousand times shrewder than you. And I don't know if you worship him as much for that, his wisdom, as for his purity. Because sometimes we get really in tune with our own sinfulness, and we're like, wow, it's amazing that Jesus is so pure, it's so good. And we forget how stupid we are, and we're not as impressed with his shrewdness. It turns out that both of these divine perfections are amazing, and when they come together in perfect relationship and balance, they are ten times more amazing. And we could enjoy that amazingness, and it could bring us pleasure, and it could also change us. Now, one of the things you need to recognize is that once you realize this, you have to do three things. This will be the only alliteration. We're at the alliteration point again. Sorry for that aside. There's three things. If you want to write down three R things, one is you need to realize that this is the way the world is. And to realize that people often behave wickedly, that that is a thing, and that wickedness is never going to identify itself for you. Nobody's going to come to you and attack you with some intrigue or slander and say, by the way, I'm going to act really wickedly right now. It's not going to happen. They're just going to do it. And you see, if you're shocked, if you just don't expect anything like that to happen to you, right? Congratulations, you've lived a very privileged life. This is—I'm so happy for you. It's so great, okay? The world is not like that. And at some point, somebody's going to get through all the layers of social capital you have around you, and you're going to get punched, okay? Like, you need to realize that you can't be naive even if you've lived a privileged life. Like, this is the way the world is, okay? Secondly, so you've got to realize, then you've got to recognize it. Okay, it's one thing to be like, I know people do wicked things. Secondly, you've got to realize when it's happening to you. You have to realize, you have to be like, oh my gosh, I think this is happening. Almost every um, survivor of sexual assault that I talk to, especially women, they'll, be, uh, they'll, be, they'll say, they'll be telling the story, and then they'll stop in the midst of telling a story of themselves being assaulted, and they'll say, I know you're thinking at this point why I didn't do anything, right? Which, of course, I'm not, because I've heard many of these stories, and I know how people respond to things they didn't expect to happen. They freeze. They don't recognize them for what they are, are in the moment, right? And the, the, the woman or, or the man will say, I just did it. There's something in me that just didn't realize what was happening. And then the moment I realized it, I just felt guilty. I went from what's happening to, oh my gosh, I must be a terrible person, right? And you see, that's true in that case, but it's also true more broadly. We usually— we can be very naive about recognizing wickedness when it's happening, even in a very extreme form like that. But in even simple forms, like when you should have known somebody was lying to you and you just didn't. Just were oblivious to it. You should have known that person was going to cheat you. You should have known you should never been in business with that person. You, sh you should have known that that wasn't going to be an, up, up, an upholding friendship. You should have known that that person's advice shouldn't have been listened to. You should have known, but— you didn't either realize that the world was full of this stuff, or you didn't recognize it. And then the, fourth, the third thing is that you got to be able to react to it. You have to have the strength of will to do something about it when it's happening. Because you realize the world is like that way, you can recognize it when it's happening, and then you are ready to react. That was four hours. Crazy. You're ready to react to do something when it's there. Now, you can see this list in Nehemiah as we work through Chapter 6, there's lots of different intrigues that he's facing. Lots of different ways people are trying to wreck him. So there's, there's co-opting, where somebody invites you in to destroy you, right? So he's just finished building a wall. So they invite him off to the city in the plains. The plains are basically, to refer to that in a military context, the plains are the least defensible place there is. It's a place of, you could say it's a fair fight, but it's also just— in military, there's one Marine general, I forget who it is, who said, if you were ever in a military situation where you were in a fair fight, you did not do your job. 
You should never be in a fair fight, right? And Nehemiah is in a position where he should never be in a fair fight with these people ever again. He's got a wall, right? And they're like, hey, come out to the plains. It's nice. We'll get a, we'll get a bath and a foot rub, you know? And he's like, I'm not going, right? But because he knows they're trying to invite him in so that they can either control him or destroy him, right? So sometimes it sounds nice. Oh, why don't you be our friend? Be in our little clique at school or do the blah, 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 blah. Or we'll, we'll invite you in our little guild or we'll give you this little honor so that you can then sell your soul to us. How about that, right? And you, you've got to realize when you're being co-opted, right? The second thing is, is just badgering. Do you notice they sent him four letters? He's like, no, I can't do it. They sent him four more letters. It's really interesting because what, I, what I've noticed is most people will not say no three times. Have you ever noticed that? That if you badger people, if you're like, will you do this? And they go, no. You'd be like, come on. Go, no. And they go, come on. They're like, okay. Right? Let's drive a car off a cliff. Or let's, you know, like, people just aren't good with badgering. And the reason is, is that our instinctually, on a really deep level, we want to be accepted. And we want to feel secure in our relationships. We know that saying no, people don't like it. And the more you say no, the more you're distancing yourself from them in a relationship. Right? You're putting a, a harder and harder boundary between you and another person. And on a deep, deep level, we don't want to say no to people. And so when people push us further, we know they're saying, hey, listen, you really should do this. We should really do this. Like, this is important for us together, right? Let's, and, we, and so we feel less inclined as we go along to say no again. And unless you get in your head, look, if this person asks me a hundred thousand times, I'm going to say no a hundred thousand times, okay? Uh, if there's any teenagers in the room, especially teenage girls, this is really important for your sexuality, because there's a lot of people who do what they don't want to do relationally or sexually because they don't have squared in their mind that they need to say no a hundred thousand times. If they need to. You got to say no. No, in fact, I say to people, after they ask me something the third time, you know, I actually say to them, I say, listen, some of you guys on staff, people have heard me say this before. Listen, you can ask me this 170 times. I'm going to say no 170 times. People don't ask again after that. Once they know, in your head, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you ask me this, I'm going to say no every time, they usually will stop asking you. The third is—the fourth is, is, is the worm tongue. Um, that's actually the name of a character in the, the Lord of the Rings in the Two Towers. The, the effect of a worm tongue is somebody—is when your enemy plants somebody very close to you who you trust, who you think is giving you good advice, but they're really destroying your strength and your will to fight. Right? So Theoden is this king in the Lord of the Rings who has a whole, a whole army of a nation of men and warriors who are incredible warriors. And there's this guy just lying to him constantly, telling him his enemy is better than he thinks and that his allies are worse than he thinks, so that he just won't do anything. And you see, in this passage, right, there is this person who's a very well-respected prophet who invites Nehemiah to come to see him because he's, he's confined to his health, either, either because of a health issue or because he's taken some kind of vow it's some kind of religious thing, or he's confining himself in his house. As a, some, a couple commentators think that it's a symbolizing that Nehemiah has been shut up by God inside the city for his danger or something like that. Anyway, the point is he's going to this prophet. He, he thinks the guy's a prophet of God. He thinks the guy's going to give him God's advice. He really wants God's advice because he's in all these conflicts. It's really hard. And so he goes to this guy he wants to believe, right? And the guy guides him in a very unfaithful direction that's in a direction he could easily say yes to because of the fears he already has, right? And that happens a lot. People will send a lying tongue next to you, right? And then infiltration, right? All the nobles. You've got all these nobles who are writing back and forth with Tobiah. And being like, Tobiah's a great guy. Don't you think he's a great guy? And then he, they're, he's, they're reporting back to Tobiah about Nehemiah. He's got spies and the people who should be on his team, right? And then lastly, you've got intimidation. Tobiah's just writing him letters saying, I'm going to get you. Just straightforward intimidation. I'm going to get you. And these things aren't happening in fully separate episodes. They're all kind of overlapping with each other, right? I mean, think of the stress of that. I mean, have you, have you been through something like that? Like people who've been through lawsuits, you know what I'm talking about. It's horrible. Or you've, you've been with people who just like, they are just trying to get in your head. They're just trying to hurt you. Or you're trying to go through a conflict with somebody well, and they are playing all of these games. When you're trying to be like, I need to go talk to them directly. Surely we can work this out. Right? Now, to apply these things, um, you have to start with knowing that the purpose of all of those things, and that was not a complete list, obviously, is fear. 
right? He says, the Exodus four times in this chapter, that the goal was fear, that they would make me and the other people afraid so that I would quit or so that I would do something with a lack of integrity so that they could humiliate me, right? So if you, if you look at the passage in verse 9, it says this, right? They wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it won't be done. They're trying to get them to stop. In verse 13, it says, for this purpose he was hired, that's this other prophet, that I should be afraid and act in a way, in this way, and sin so that they could give me a bad name and taunt me. Verse 14, it says, the prophets wanted to make me afraid. Verse 19, Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Because if you can create enough fear and anxiety in somebody, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to either act cowardly or they're going to act rashly. Right? They're either going to back off and they're going to try to hide and they're going to pull themselves away from the fight or they're going to, they're going to like go forward stupidly and do something they should never have done. And so you'll have them because they stepped out on a limb and you've got them. And when you get enough fear in people, they will do something wrong because they'll act out of self-interest, they'll act out of self-preservation, and they'll do—and they, they're not thinking about what's going to happen. They're not thinking about—they're just going to act. And sometimes we think that we're really refined and that that's not going to happen to us, and we call fear, anxiety, and other things so that we don't even admit to ourselves that we're really afraid. And we, like, type back emails to people showing them how wrong they are, and, and we, we don't recognize— what people are doing to us, and how easy we are to control and manipulate if we don't recognize the fear that it creates and how it can hurt us. Do you understand? Okay, so let's look at a couple two don'ts and two do's in terms of applying this, right? The first is don't hand yourself over to people you can't trust. Uh, I was talking with a young woman this last week who um, was working for an organization in a very different capacity. She had a one-year don't compete, and she started working with, like, disabled children at a really low wage to try to help the choice schooling in our area so that some kids that wouldn't have access otherwise to those kinds of services could have access to those services. Didn't really fall under her no compete, right? But somehow that firm found out that she had a job just generally in the field, and they got a lawyer, and they sent a cease and desist, and they threatened to sue her, right? And so she came to me, and she said, Nick, you talk about courage. You talk about fighting, right? You talk about us not just laying down. She's like, is this one of those situations where I should fight, right? And the first conversation we had was, was this. Um, well, first of all, can you work it out? Can you work it out, right? Or, so are these the kind of people you can work it out with, right? Because the Bible says that ideally, if the person is a brother, at least in the faith, right, that you should go to them and try to work it out before, right? And Jesus even says, if, he literally says, if somebody sues you, Talk to them while you're on the way to the courthouse. Like, see if you can't work it out, because you never know what's going to happen in there. Right? You might get justice. You might not get justice. So even if you think you're right, try to work it out. Right? And so I said, do you think you can work it out? And so we talked about the character of the people in this company. How they cut certain costs in dishonest ways. How they tended to be very mean to their employees. How they would intentionally recruit certain people in certain ways so that they could underpay them. How they would sue people whenever they had a chance to do so, knowing that those people wouldn't engage in the legal system to defend themselves, and so on. Like this long train of abuses, right? And I said, well then, it sounds like you shouldn't put yourself in their hands. It sounds like that would be stupid. And she was like, yeah, but is that right? Like, should I, as a Christian, say, go to them and try to help them, or shouldn't I? Because I really don't want to. But should I? Because I'm, I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. And I said, listen, when you think about what to do in situations of conflict, you need to take into context the whole of the scriptures and what the Bible teaches. And there's a lot about conflict, for example, in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs—where did I put that thing? Okay. Um, there's this section where there's, there's essentially three categories of people that come up again and again in the book of Proverbs, right? Um, I'm taking this from um, some of Henry Cloud's work. One is the wise. So the wise man or the wise woman is somebody who just learns from everything. And so if you criticize them and tell them they're doing something wrong, they're like, oh, thank you so much. Because their whole heart and mind is oriented on doing the good and honoring God and, and growing in faith and in wisdom. And so whether you positively or negatively, if they know that you're not intentionally trying to destroy them, right? They're so glad for you interacting with them because they're always—they want to learn more. They want to grow wise, right? And so these are people you can absolutely trust. 
These are people that you can work out problems with. These are people that you can criticize for their good and for the good of the people that they're serving because you know their character. They want to grow. And you want these people around you, and you want to be one of these people, okay? The second group is— um, and there's a lot of people, listen, there's a lot of people who, this is, you can think of conversion this way. When Jesus saves somebody, one of the things that he's doing is he's taking somebody who is in the lower two categories and making them the first kind of category person. It's one of the things he's doing with people, right? The second thing is what the, what the Bible calls the fool, which is the person who just doesn't learn. And therefore, the only thing they respond to is pain, right? So when a parent has to discipline their child in a way that's painful, one of the things that Parents can say, it's like, look, I'm disciplining you, disciplining you because you won't learn. I told you what to do. I gave you an opportunity to do what, We've gone through this a number of times. You're choosing not to learn. The only thing you respond to is consequences. So I'm using consequences. The minute you start learning and doing the thing yourself, I won't need any of these consequences. Right? And so that's a second category, but that's not the worst category. There's another category of direct and interested viciousness where people have gone through being a fool and have so committed themselves to being a fool, but yet have decided that they want to learn how to still do what's unjust, but have fewer fool-like consequences. So they, they commit themselves to the sanctification in evil. They want to—they they grow in diabolical wisdom. They, 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 they're, they're more committed to getting their way and getting what they want and— but they don't want to pay the consequences of being stupid. And so they give themselves to, in a sense, in a sense an anti-sanctification. They choose to be wicked. Now, in their minds, or our minds, if it's one of us, some of us, right, we still think we're good people, right? The human mind will always come up with a reason to believe that it's good. You'll almost never find somebody who says, yeah, I'm just totally given to evil. It's totally— I'm just the devil, right? Even when people say they're the devil, they're taking a certain kind of moral pride in it because they think everybody else is a sucker and a hypocrite, and therefore they're a good—they really believe they're a good person. That is that they're—they believe they're better than everybody else in a moral category they've connected their heart to. Does that make sense? It's important to realize this. And so one of the things you have to do to be shrewd is to recognize what category is the person you're talking to. Like when I sat down with this woman, I said, here are the three categories. Which would you put them in? She's like, oh, there's no question they're in that third category. It's like, well, then do not put yourself in their hands. They're not brothers <laughs> in the Lord. You, Matthew 18 is not the command you're given, right? So the question is, what do you want to do? So you can fight them? What you do with the wicked is money, guns, and lawyers, because they're going to try to kill you. So you've got to defend yourself. How are you going to do it? I said, you can fight them in court, or you can believe that their economic model is so wicked that you can wait out you're no compete, and go to work for this competing firm, and you can beat the heck out of them over 20 years in Madison by serving people better than them until people realize their bad character and the company that you're in thrives. It's your choice, right? But I said, I don't trust, I don't trust the legal system as far as I can throw it. I trust the markets a lot more than I trust the legal system. So my bet would be on the second, right? I'm not going to tell you what she did. But you see, the, the point is, is that part of shrewdness is knowing who to put yourself in their hands. If, if somebody's truly wise and you really can trust them, you can put your life in their hands, right? If somebody's a fool, they're not going to attack you, but you also can't trust them with a piece of bacon, man. They're just going to—they're going to do stupid things. They're not going to do it the way you want to. They're, when you train them, you're teaching them how to do something, they're not learning. You can love them, but you can't trust them, Right? And with the wicked, you have to defend yourself against them. You have to be shrewd about it. You got to build a wall, right? Now, here's something that's important to realize. Who did Jesus feel like he could give himself to, right? There's this great passage in John 2 where it says, Now, while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men, and he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. See, he didn't need anybody to tell him how to be shrewd. He didn't need anybody to tell him about what people were going to do to him. He knew what was in the heart of every human being, and he knew exactly how far he could trust us. And the answer was, he can't. 
And so he, and there's a sense in which Jesus put himself in people's hands, and there's another sense in which he never put himself in anybody's hands. Right? I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. The second is don't get drawn into defending yourself. Right? Um, Richard John Newhouse um, used to say, um, you, you can't answer a sneer. When an accusation is a lie, it's just a slander, no evidence is given, or only bad evidence is given, then to dignify an act of power as though it's an act of truth is to do violence to the truth. Do you understand? When, when, when they say to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, we know you're just trying to be king. You're building this wall, and then you're going to have people declare you king, and then you're going to rebel against the king. And listen, everybody's saying it, right? And he doesn't say, well, you know, I, I, here's the minutes of our meetings and what— No, he's just like, you guys are making this stuff up out of your heads, which is a kind way of saying where it's coming out of, right? And then— And then he just says, no, you know, nothing like this is true. You're making it up. And then he just—he—what he, he what can you do when people slander you, right? He prays, and he keeps working. He just calls it what it is. He prays, and he keeps working. And sometimes that's really all you can do. Don't be drawn into the slapping match, right? I remember Robbie Zacharias used to say that when you start throwing mud, not only do you get your hands dirty, but you lose a lot of ground. Get it? It's just not going to work, right? Especially don't do it in written form, right? Okay. And so you can see this, like this, this is part of Jesus' identity in his crucifixion, that he didn't defend himself. And sometimes people get upset about this because they're like, no, Nick, I've read the Gospels. I've read the Gospels. I got you. Because when Jesus is on trial, there are a couple places where he says something. And sheep, when they're being sheared, don't say anything, right? Which, okay, first of all, I've sheared sheep. That's not true. <laughs> but let's just take it for what it is, right? So here, here's the thing. There's a difference between defending yourself and telling a truth Right? If you read what Jesus says in his trials, where he says something like, listen, if my father— like, the only reason you have any power over me is because it's been given to you. <laughs> you don't have any, any truth—there are places where he says a few things, and he's basically saying it for the good of his accusers. He's saying, listen, say whatever you want. This is all a falsehood, and you know it, and you're destroying your own soul by pretending that your use of power is the action of truth. It's not, right? That's exactly what Nehemiah does. He's like, there's no truth in this, and you know it. So let's get on with things, right? Jesus' defense of himself in the gospel is simply a statement of the truth, what it is for the good of his other people, and he says, this is an act of power, not truth. I'm done talking, right? And then he just lets them do whatever he's going to do. Because he's even in the place where they, he, they're going to kill him, and he knows they're going to kill him, he will not undignify the truth by pretending he is in a truth conversation. And you did not do that either. When the intrigue is slander, you dignify it. You allow it to slide into making an argument and a pretense to being truthful when it's really just an act of power. And people need to know, and they need to know for their own souls, you need to show it. Now the listeners can see, when you behave that way, that you know that it's just a craven act of power, right? Okay, so two do's, right? One is, make the fear of God your greatest fear. Make the fear of God your greatest fear. One of, the, one of the things it says in the Psalms is that the word of the Lord makes the simple wise. Simple in that context means not that smart, okay? It literally means somebody who's just not bright. There's a lot of people who aren't bright. Do you know that? And listen, if you're one of those people, we, like, you're fantastic. Right? Like, you, you have the, the image of God, just like anybody else, right? There's a lot of times my wife says, you know, in areas of your life, Nick, there's, you know, I, I'm not that smart, right? There's, there's a lot of people who fall under the simple, but here's the thing. If you know the precepts of the Lord and you obey them, you will act a lot wiser than your intellect. Because God gives you in the scriptures ready-made principles that if he was going to tell you all the reasoning for them, it would fill up all the books on planet Earth. But what he does is, in his mind, he has them all reasoned out. He just tells you the conclusion, and if you'll trust him, you will act much wiser than you actually are in terms of raw intellectual power. Similarly, for everybody, even if you don't think you're one of the simple, which, be careful, right? Um, the same dynamic works for all of us. Because Nehemiah thought this guy was on his team. He thought that the, that the prophet, 
that he went to was one of the wise. He thought he was trustworthy. His family, if um, his father's name matches up with the, the use of that same name in Ezra, was a unverified Levite. So like in the priest class, among the clergy. So he's from a pastor's family. He's a prophet. But this is a good guy, right? But here's the thing. He said, let's, he said, look, I know people have gotten into this, infiltrated the city to kill you, and they're coming to kill you tonight. What we need to do is go into the citadel of the temple and lock ourselves in there, right? Now here's the thing. Nehemiah is not allowed in there. He's not a Levite. He's not of the priest class. Only the priests are allowed in there. It is against the law of God for him to go in there. In the Old Testament, there was, a, there was a king who went in there and did something in the temple, and God struck him with leprosy immediately. Right? He's not allowed in there. It may be that this guy, the prophet that he's talking to, that he had been excluded by Ezra because he couldn't verify he was in the priest line. And he's trying to get Nehemiah to go with him into the temple because if Nehemiah, who's not even in the priest line at all, goes into the temple and he'll defile the temple like that, then how can he keep this guy who has a claim to the priesthood out? His whole family can get back in. This is his ticket, right? The point is, Nehemiah would have been fooled except for two things. One, The act itself is cowardly. Right? He says, should a man like me run into the temple? Right? But that may have not been enough. If it had just been that, he might have said, well, maybe, but if I just do it one night, like if I, if I don't let the assassins get me tonight, right? What's so bad about that? I mean, maybe, yeah, it's maybe not symbolically exactly what we want, but is it really that bad? But here's the thing. The second thing was, he said, can a man like me go into the temple, do this sin, and not die? Right? You see, he's like, listen, dude, there's somebody that I fear a lot more than these assassins you're talking about. <laughs> right? Like, listen, like, I fear God. Like, he, and he, like, like, that is a, like, he might kill you deal. And I'm just not, I'm not playing. I'm not doing it. And you see, when this guy told him to explicitly disobey God, that's when he knew. Right? I'm telling you, listen, we're all simpler than we ought to be. And we can learn this book, you and I. It's not that big a book. You really can learn what the scripture teaches. And you don't have to know all the knowledge of the human race. You don't have to know every psychological truth and every possible human manipulation. Because at some point, the people manipulating you will ask you to do something against the Lord. They will, they will encourage you or entice you or invite you into a sin. Or they will call you away from a nobility. Which is exactly what's done here. He's called away from a nobility and into a sin, and he recognizes both of them. He says, wait a second. I told the people that if we stood, God would fight for us. I said that God was behind us. I said the gracious hand of our God is upon us. I put soldiers at every gate and every opening. I am the, per I am the one who's doing this. I'm a believer. I'm their governor. I can't be a coward, right? He knew he's being invited out of a nobility, and he knew he's being invited into a sin. And so he knew Right? And you see, the only thing that saved him in that moment was that he really did fear God more than his own death. Right? It says in, um, it says in, um, the book of Matthew, Jesus says, listen, um, don't fear people who can kill you and bury your body, and after you, they, after that, they can't do anything to you. But fear the one who can kill you and kill your body in this life, and then after that, throw your soul into hell forever. That's kind of a mean saying, right? I mean, Jesus, it's just like, Jesus, man, did you—where did that come from, right? And, and the answer is, is that that's the most, one of the most freeing statements the human race has ever received. It's arguably the most, other than that God loves the world, right? The, maybe the second most freeing statement the human race has ever received is, fear the one who can kill your body and throw you into hell. Because it says just a verse and a half later than that, right? That then you won't have to fear anything. Right? Because it says in the book of Hebrews, one of the, the beauty of the death and resurrection of Jesus and us believing in him and knowing that we're going to have death and resurrection in him it says, it set free those who all their lives were chained to the fear of death. You see, if you don't 
remember what Satan knows in Job 2? Satan takes away his wealth, takes away Job's family, gets his wife to turn on him, does all that stuff, and then he says to God, flesh for flesh, any man will do anything to save his own life. That is the bet of the book of Job between God and Satan. Every man will do anything to save his body, his life. And God goes, we'll see. We'll see. And the, and the answer is, not Job, at least that guy. But we're left to believe that it is ponderously true of all of us. That when it comes right down to it, if our life was on the line, and not just our physical life and death, but the life we think we have, our little house and our clothes and the, the makeup we can afford and that we can go out and get wings if we feel like it. All those little things that are buying our souls because of how we worship them instead of enjoy them with open hands, right? That if we, if we don't fear God a hundred times more than that, then there are a thousand fears that cling and have barbs in our heart that can be used to pull us like little puppet strings to do whatever people or devils or our flesh want us to do. Is that, is that who you want to be? It will be who you are if the fear of the Lord is not your greatest fear. If you're not freed by that. And, and, and it's not a simple thing where you just go, well, yeah, that's going to be true of me. It is really hard. Okay, then lastly, really quickly, when he gets all done, he knows who to entrust things to. And they're not perfect. Right? He's like, I found this guy who fears God more than most people do. <laughs> like, you would love to find a guy who just fears God. But he didn't, couldn't find one of those. Now note this. In all the tribes of Judah, he couldn't actually find anyone who he knew absolutely feared God more than anything else. So he picked somebody that feared God more than most people do. Right? Scripture intentionally tells us how rare a thing integrity is. It does it on purpose. And it doesn't do it so that you'll quit. It does it to inspire you. That if you—because see, we all want to be special, right? Like, think about it. Everybody wants to be a little star, wants to be a little YouTube star. I'm going to be an influencer on Instagram. We're going to be the blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm, like, everybody wants to be special. Well, listen, everything you want to be special isn't special. It's not special. Your Twitter account is not special. Your Instagram account is not special. The way you make your coffee is not special. Even if it's rare, it doesn't matter. To be special, it has to be, it has to be uncommon and incredibly important. It has to be, it has to matter. The, the thing that is uncommon and special is godliness. It is integrity. It is that you are not afraid of what anybody could do to you. Because not only do you fear the Lord more than you fear any, everything else, but the perfect love of Christ has driven out all fear. And you walk already dead. Like Lazarus after he came out of the grave. Try scaring that guy. Right? Like, that feeling like you've already been dead and called out of the grave and who can really kill you? That is your inheritance right now. Right? And it is— to, but you can't just say, I believe that. You have to appropriate it emotionally, personally, in your character, through disciplines, so that it is always going to the core and releasing all that is in conflict with it, so that you can have integrity of soul, not just behavior. And you can have living inside of you the divine union of true, wise shrewdness with a purity of heart that is single. Right? There is— How did Jesus manage the cross? Think about, have you ever thought about this? How did Jesus manage the cross? You think God told Satan what he was going to do? And Satan was like, yeah, I'll use all these wicked people to kill Jesus. That's cool. We're on the same team. You think that's what happened? The Bible explicitly says that Jesus— laid his life down intentionally. He said explicitly in the Bible, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. Right? And yet, he 
so moved through situations in total integrity and purity, shrewdly enough so that Satan's best followers would kill the greatest person on earth, so that in their act of triumphant evil, Jesus would save the souls of humanity forever. Against the will of devils and evil men. He got evil, the worst of evil in men and devils, to serve and even create the greatest good of God that has ever happened in the cosmos. You're not that shrewd. Talk about shrewd. It's that same Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, working in the outgoing of the Spirit, who is being shrewd today. In the working of his church, in the working of this era, in the saving of people of all nations, in the creating of integrity in you, in the building up of his church, in making Christ known, in calling his enemies back to himself, he is working a similar good in the ages among the nations right now. And he is just as shrewd right now as he has ever been. Because love uses wisdom to overcome its enemies, not just power. Because if, if you use only power, you have to kill your enemies. And he wants to save them. And so he uses his shrewdness, not just his power. And so he wants to make you shrewd. And he wants to bring you into his shrewdness through obedience. And through leading you by his spirit. And he wants to free you forever from the fear of death. And he wants to make you into everything that you could possibly be. So that you would say something like this. Should a man or woman like me do this? And that you know in the moment that it's divinely beneath you to do what's not full of integrity, but that you see it and you act with the full shrewdness of Christ. In the time of Nehemiah, when people came together for worship, they did the preaching first and the worshiping God afterwards because they wanted the worshiping to be a response to the truth. So one of the things I asked Nicole to do was to backload our worship time for several weeks while we're in this, especially when we're in this series, so that we could think about the beauty of Jesus and then emotionally express our love for him. Especially for those of us who are a little repressed, we need a little cognitive warm-up before we can really love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as the worship band comes up here, um, I'm going to pray, and then let's start by just enjoying and adoring God and emotionally committing ourselves, if you believe— to the truths about God that we should adore. So that we get a sufficient spiritual vision of God that our hearts are drawn into the moral vision of his truths so that we can really live by grace and not in the panic and cowardice of fear. Does that make sense? Let's pray. God, as we sing these songs and as we love and worship you, God, we pray that you would, you would work in us. Holy Spirit, please come we open ourselves to receive from you your teaching. Please illuminate our minds while you quicken and draw in our hearts. And please give us the integrity of knowing you well. In Jesus' name.